I think it's very fascinating to be here on, um, um, I love these historical books uh, in the Old Testament, and um, uh, it's kind of a little bit of a, a love-hate relationship. I love what they, uh, what they teach and the instruction that they give us. Um, it's interesting that we're looking at it uh, related to Fourth of July, Independence Day for the United States of America, because as we head into this section now of of uh, uh, First Kings and beyond, we're going to realize that our nation is making every single mistake that Israel made in the ancient world that brought it into captivity to foreign nations. And that's exactly where we're headed as a country. Um, not because of economic policies, not because of this, not because of that, in terms of some, on some material level. All of the, the uh, physical kind of problems that we have a nation, as a nation, they come out of a deeper cause. They're just symptom problems. And the real problem is, as God has made it no secret in his word right from the very beginning, that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. No nation in the world, even the, the most powerful nation in the world at this point in time, the United States of America, though that power is fading literally by the day. And we'll look at a part of this passage just applies so much to our, our nation today. I don't always go in this kind of a vein when I'm teaching because I like the teaching to be timeless and not talking about some era in the United, chapter of the United States of America or Brazil or Austria or anything like that. But... The fact of the matter is, is that the core of the problems here, they are moral and they are spiritual. God's definitions of right and wrong, what he wants a nation to be, a nation that he can bless, all of those things are being jettisoned. And it, no country in the world has enough money. If, if, if that country moves away from God and his definitions... They will bankrupt themselves trying to replace the, the place that God alone is intended to have in a nation and among, among a people. We are intended to cooperate with God in terms of law and order in a nation, even if everybody in the nation doesn't believe in God. And we've moved from that and our country is bankrupting itself because it has moved from his his standard It's interesting. I was reading somebody bought me a subscription to World Magazine and I was reading it the other um, week and it was uh, was talking about, you know, sometimes we look at these things and say, well, you know, people sin or they abandon uh, God's institutions or his definitions of right and wrong. And they're the only ones that bear the consequences of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, kind of like a victimless crime deal. And uh, But I was reading it, and this is just one little tiny sliver. We're talking a little tiny sliver of the pie. And they were talking about in terms of the redefining of marriage or the abandonment of marriage uh, altogether. I mean, the, even in our country, the tax uh, benefits are loaded away toward not being married rather than married. It's insane for a country with... A, a, a godly heritage. But they talked about just single parenthood in the United States of America with so many women who are raising their children alone. The cost to our nation on an annual basis is over $140 billion a year. That is for violating and moving away from God's word and his definitions on just 
one little tiny area. We're not even talking about Supreme Court justices who uphold abortion, homosexual marriage, lots of other things like that. So this is what here was a country, the, uh, the country of Israel. God blessed them so much uh, because of their heritage with David and Solomon, even at the beginning of his reign, that it translated into material wealth until in Jerusalem. Um, if it wasn't made of gold, it was nothing. If it was made of silver, that was considered to be rocks. But then they moved away. Solomon did. And then Rehoboam did. Then Jeroboam did. Moved away from God. And it's amazing how quickly all of that can be lost. And how a nation can be lost in a single generation. And we're in danger of it in the United States of America tonight, right now. The only thing that gives me any peace, we will get into the Bible. This is not a rant, by the way. It is uh, setting up the scriptures here. When I look at the world that I live in, and I, this is one of the reasons that I love the historical books, I love the prophetic books, because it always reminds me, in addition to our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. I realize in reading the historical books of the Old Testament, God wins. And I know I'm on the right side of, of things. I know that I can't change the world. I can't change a nation. I can't change a city. But I can do what God has called me to do and to be and to be in my place where God wants me to be found. And and then to realize and I've, you see it through the scriptures over and over again. God is in charge of human history. He will deal with nations. He will deal with individuals. He will have the final say in everything. And so there's the peace of knowing as messy as things are that my God is moving man's history to his God appointed end. And that's the only reason I walk in peace every day in this world is because he can make it all to praise him. Now, chapter 14, at that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, and Jeroboam is the king uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel. The Israel is now split into the two kingdoms. So sometime after this prophet had come in and rebuked Jeroboam for this false religious system of setting up the two uh, golden calves and this whole man-made religious system, and uh, the prophet was faithful to deliver the prophecy. Jeroboam completely disregarded the warning from God. And the prophet died because of his uh, failure to be faithful completely to what God had called him to. Sometime after that, uh, he, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. Evidently, very, very sick. And so, uh, uh, you know, who do you turn to? I mean, if you put yourself in Jeroboam's place... He knows he made up the golden calves. He knows he made up the priesthood. He knows he made up this whole goofy religious system. So who do you run to at a time like that when you've made up this whole false thing and you know it's false and now your son is dying? That's, that's where you reveal who your true God is. Who you believe in is who you turn to at a moment like that. So his son's in real deep trouble, and he's concerned about it. At least he has that much of a heart. So he said to his wife, comes up with this plot, Please arise and disguise yourself. 
that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam, as the king's wife. And I want you to go to the city of Shiloh, because in the city of Shiloh, uh, 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 in the city of, uh, let's see, where am I now here? Um, go to Shiloh. Indeed, uh, because Ahijah the prophet is there who told me that I would be the king over this people. So he doesn't know what it is that's happening to his son, but he knows that there is a prophet who hears from God and what he speaks from God ends up being the truth. Because Ahijah is the one that came to Jeroboam when he was just an officer in Solomon's army and said, listen, I'm going to tear ten tribes out of the hands of Solomon and I'm going to make you the king of those ten tribes over Israel. And sure enough, against all odds, that's exactly what happened. So he knows this guy hears from God and, and the last time I talked with him about the things of God, it was favorable. It went in, in, in my, uh, it was good news for me. I did become that king. And so obviously he's hopeful that Ahijah is going to have a good report, that your son is going to recover and everything is, is going to be okay. So he sends his wife there to uh, sneak over there and, and hide her identity, probably for two reasons, to disguise herself. Number one, to hide her identity from the prophet. So Jeroboam knows that if she shows up with a big queen entourage, that Ahijah would look and say, yeah, you're the wife of that wicked Jeroboam, and I'm not going to give you a good report concerning your son. Probably even more likely the reason that Jeroboam has his wife disguise herself is that he doesn't want her to be recognized by the children of Israel. That this is my wife, and when push comes to shove, I don't believe any of this nonsense that I've led the nation into. And I don't want the nation to know that when I get in trouble, I send them to the true prophets of God to hear something from Jehovah God. And so he, that's what he's hiding. He's hiding from the people. It really makes you wonder about how many people who lead God's people into error how many of them really don't believe the error that they're teaching? And when they get in trouble, they go back to what the Bible says or they go back to, to God. I remember watching one time a guy that is absolutely one of the spokesmen for the positive confession movement, that if you have enough faith, you'll be wealthy, and, you, and if you have enough faith, you'll always be healed. Well, he showed up at church uh, one Sunday morning looking like me. He's got a sling and he's got a cast on his leg or he's got a couple of injuries and he had um, he, he had a couple of surgeries. And now he's got to explain this to about 10,000 people in this gigantic church that he pastors that he didn't have enough to, faith to get healed, but he had to involve doctors. But he tried to explain the whole thing that he really wasn't um, he, it wasn't that he that. Uh, that he had the doctors and he went under the knife in order to deal with the disease. These were just symptoms of his problems. These weren't real problems. And, and so this is how he dealt with it. So he goes in this big, long uh, discussion and, uh, uh, you know, song and a dance. I'm thoroughly enjoying myself as I watch it because I happen to really like the guy, not his heir, but he has a great gift to teach. And I wish he was uh, biblical about his teaching. And you could just see the people almost collectively roll their eyes. 
I mean, they, they loved him. He's their pastor. But they knew he was just spouting nonsense. And that when it really came down to wanting to use his shoulder and his ankle, he didn't put himself under the trip he put everybody else under. He got himself checked into the finest hospital in the United States of America and was operated on by the finest surgeons in the United States. And so you wonder how many people that lay this whole trip on other people when it really comes time for them to make a stand on that false doctrine, you know, how many of them really do or they go sneaking around the way that uh, Jeroboam is forcing his wife to do here. So this is the whole uh, sneaking that's happening here. And so he said, take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey and go to him, and he will tell you what will become of the child. So that's the purpose of the visit. It's interesting that this gift... Now, if somebody shows up at my house... And, and by the way, you would bring a gift to a prophet because it would be um, an expression of respect toward them and uh, just to honor them. And so, if, but if anyone came and brought me ten loaves and some cakes and a jar of honey, and I'd, wow, okay. But in those days, that was a poor man's offering to a prophet. A king would have brought silver and gold and camels laden with this or that. So the whole idea of bringing this kind of an offering to the prophet is reinforcing the idea that she's just really a, a nameless nobody that's just showing up wondering about her anonymous son. And so they've got this whole thing down pretty good. And so Jeroboam's wife did so, and she arose, and she went to Shiloh. She came to the house of Ahijah, but Ahijah couldn't see her physically, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. And so he's got some kind of a problem. It sure sounds like cataracts uh, to me. And so he's physically blind, but boy, his spiritual eyes are, whoo, he, he's, he's getting everything. He's really in tune with the Lord. So he's, uh, they've really got him, everything's loaded up against him for understand what's really happening here. But God's on his side. And the Lord said to Ahijah, here is the wife of Jeroboam. Just flat out outs her here. Coming to ask you something about her son because he is sick. And thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be that when she comes in, that she will pretend to be another woman. Now you think about Jeroboam here. None of this makes sense. It's just crazy. He is having his wife go to approach Ahijah to seek the God, to seek the Lord about the future of his son. He believes that God knows the future of his son, and yet he thinks at the same time he can sneak up on that God. How do you sneak up on a God who knows the future? Knows everything that you're doing at the moment. I mean, it's just goofy. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is, Everything is open and naked before him with whom we have to do. Speaking of the Lord. You can't sneak up on God. You can't trick God. You can't corner God. You can't manipulate God. But they give it a try here. And, and God uh, takes and speaks the whole thing, the whole plot to Ahijah before she shows up. And so it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door, he said, shock of her life. Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person for I have been sent uh, to you with bad news. So here you've got a situation where 
She's just got to be uh, undone. Because as far as she's concerned, only her and her husband, they're the only two that know about this whole thing. And yet somehow this prophet knows before she even gets to the door what her name is and what it is that she's uh, trying to do here. No sneaking up on God just does not happen. And so uh, he speaks to her, says, uh, uh, no need to pretend that you're somebody else. I've got news for the news that you're wanting, but it, it's going to be uh, bad news. Now, surely the fact that God does this in this supernatural way is intended to make her realize that God is in control of this situation and that whatever she's going to hear as a verdict from Ahijah is actually going to take place. So God is basically bolstering her faith for, for uh, the truth that she's about to hear. He said, here's what I want you to do. You've been sent for news. Here's the news. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel. I, I raised you up to follow Solomon because of Solomon's idolatry. I expected better of you than I got out of Solomon, and what I've gotten out of you is worse. And I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all of his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. But you have done more evil than all who were before you, for you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. God is saying, you took, I gave you a position of power and prominence and influence. And what you did with that among my people, this is a leader among God's people, is you put all of this nonsense to the foreground and you put me in the background. I didn't raise you up to put me in the background. I think it's a great ministry lesson. God never raises a church up. He never raises a pastor up. He never raises a Christian mother or father or grandmother or grandfather. He never raises up a person so that God would then be put in the background in any circumstance or situation, much less be replaced with a kind of nonsense that Jeroboam did. This was an affront to God and God is speaking to Jeroboam about his failure. So therefore, there's consequences to what you've done, Jeroboam. Behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it's all gone. God is, declares uh, to the wife to be delivered to Jeroboam, I'm going to wipe out your whole lineage. I gave you a promise that if you and your descendants would be righteous in your reign, that your, your lineage would go on indefinitely in human history, the same kind of promise that was given to David. I also warned you that if you turned away from my word, I would cut you off. And God says, as he looked at Jeroboam, looked at all of his lineage, he said, I'm going to cut the whole thing off. Not one, not one survivor. You're not going to have one survivor to, to reign uh, over my people because this is uh, what it is that you've done 
and you will do. And he likens the house of Jeroboam as one who takes away dung, literally, until it's all gone. So he said, I'm going to treat you and your lineage the way that you've treated me. I'm going to treat your lineage like garbage. It's just going to be taken out and it's going to be thrown away. It's going to be handled the same way people handle refuse or handle dung. The dogs will eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. That was a great, great insult in those days for someone to die and then for their body to be left out in the open. Now you think about that, somebody uh, that you would love or care about, and they die and nobody buries them, and you come out of your house in the morning and the dogs are pulling them apart and devouring them, or if they're out in the field, the birds are pecking them apart. What it it would be, it would be a, a disgrace to the whole family. It would be a disgrace to their friends. Somebody would rise up. Um, with some kind of care for a person and give them a proper burial. For For bodies to be handled in this way is an indication that by the time these folks died in the light of what they had done to God's people, nobody cared. He, he, he didn't, for what he did to God's people, he didn't have a friend in the world. And those bodies would not be buried properly, which was a great shame, and spoke of the lack of popularity of the person or the, the uh, kind of disgust toward the person on the part of, of the population. And so arise, go to your own house, and when your feet enter into the city, the child is going to die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave uh, that is peaceably and be buried properly because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. And so God speaks and he says concerning this child, I want to tell you what's going to happen to him. He is going to die and he is going to end up uh, being buried. He will die the moment that you step back into the palace. Now, remember, as we looked at last week, that when God would give a prophecy about something uh, months or years down the line in history, well, anybody can stand up and say, God is going to do this or thus saith the Lord. So very often God would give a, uh, a prophecy or a word of knowledge of something that he was going to do on the short term so that when that miracle occurred, they would be confident that what he's spoken about this thing happening in the more distant future, that that's going to come to pass as well. And so the death of the son would would not not only was it the death of the son, but it would be an indication to them, both uh, Jeroboam and his wife, that this was the future of their uh, entire uh, bloodline. Now, it's interesting that um, God speaks of this boy that he's going to die and um, really speaks of of it in terms of something that is uh, kind of good that he's he's going uh, going to die in this way um, that because God knows that just in a very few short years uh, all of this 
uh, violence is going to come by a, a man by the name of uh, Baasha is going to come against Jeroboam. All of the other uh, male descendants are going to be violently put to death. And by virtue of this uh, young man dying uh, uh, as a result of sickness, it would be a, uh, a quieter, uh, easier way to die than what was going to come upon the whole bloodline. It is fascinating that there's something, as God speaks favorably about this uh, young prince here, there's something about his life that God looked at him and said he's different than Jeroboam and he's different from, from all of the other sons in that bloodline. Apparently, we don't know exactly what, but apparently, on some level, he disapproved of his father's practices. And, and, and God knew that he did. And God said, because of his stand, however large or vocal it might have been, God said, I've taken note of that and I'm going to slip him into eternity by way of this illness that he's uh, contracted rather than by way of, of the violence that is going to come to Jeroboam's bloodline. There's a in, in that whole uh, the fact that God spares this one son and does it, it, a violent death and. Uh, and doesn't the others indicates that the other sons were all more than ready to follow Jeroboam in his wickedness and, and perpetuating his idolatry and his wickedness in the land. Sometimes um, when I'm at a memorial service and someone has died and um, and especially if it's a younger person, if it's a child or, you know, somebody that's in the, uh, their teens or in their 20s. I really very often I will think of Isaiah chapter 57, verse one, when when that young person is uh, maybe even before they've had a chance to choose Christ. And I don't want to open a can of worms on that. I believe those those kiddos had uh, head uh, to heaven. But uh, when you see a young child that hasn't engaged in any wickedness, you see someone who goes to heaven and they haven't um, they they're living a righteous life. They're obeying God. Their life is fruitful. And yet that accident occurs or that disease takes hold of their body. And Isaiah chapter 57, verse one, uh, God speaks and says, the righteous perishes, not the unrighteous. The righteous perishes and no one takes it to heart. What don't they take to heart? Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. And there are times where God can look and say, I'm going to take in this younger person's life and I'm going to slip them home uh, to heaven. And we look at it and we say, this is the worst thing. This is the most terrible thing. This is the greatest tragedy that could happen. But God knows the future of the world and of individuals. And he can look and say, I'm going to take this this one home right now. And you have no idea the kind of things that I'm going to spare them by virtue of taking them home. What kind of addictions they might get into, what kind of trouble they might get into, what kind of problems that they might get into. So the Lord is very wise. He is to be surrendered to 
in, in his decision making. And we see that same heart that he has where he would look and maybe say, well, this is a difficult thing. If the Lord liked what he did and saw that there was something different in him, why would the Lord go ahead and slip him uh, home to heaven, so to speak, uh, in, in this way through the sickness? Because he knew something far worse and far more violent was down the road. And so he got him out of this fallen place called the world. World. And moreover, he said in verse 14, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What even now? And a king by the name of Baasha is going to do that for the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is stricken, is, uh, uh, is shaken in the water. He shall uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger and he will give up he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel to sin and so the Lord speaks of the judgment that was going to come on Jeroboam and his house and then he also spoke judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel for their participating in the sin. Jeroboam could have never remained as king. He could have never introduced that idolatry and that false religious system without the cooperation of the general public that made up the nation of Israel at that time. And God says he know he, he's going to let Jeroboam have it for his wickedness, but he's going to hold the nation responsible for enabling that king to introduce a false religious system that would ultimately, as he reveals here, lead to the captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel. They will be overrun, taken captive in mass, displaced from the land of Israel by the Assyrians in just a couple of hundred years. And so um, this is the judgment that came against the population for uh, the, their enabling him to do what it is that he does. I'll tell you the other thing that in terms of a citizen and any Christian citizen in any nation ought to make a stand against unrighteousness, make a stand against ungodliness, because the Lord, I was just been reading in Ezekiel in my devotional time, and the Lord uh, was speaking there about taking note of individuals even within the wickedness that was a part of, uh, of God's people at that time, and then taking note of that and dealing with them on an individual basis, even in a context of evil. So again, we can't change the whole world. We may not even be able to change our nation and it, it, in terms of salt and light. God has to do that kind of a thing. But there is this, uh, this importance for us to make a stand individually, live for God, however evil the context uh, becomes around us. And I'm not just talking about on a national level or international level, but even in our own neighborhoods and in our schools and in our apartment complexes and, and, and among our, our peers and sports teams, making that, that kind of a stand, living for God and that uh, that environment. And so judgment was going to come on them because Jeroboam couldn't have got away with what he got away with without their support. And then Jeroboam's wife arose. She departed. She came uh, to Tirzah 
and back home. And she came when she came to the threshold of the house, the child died as just as was prophesied. They buried him and all Israel mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant, Ahijah, the prophet. So all of that came to pass concerning the boy. Everything else was going to come to pass as a result. Now, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned. Indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. The period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years. So he rested with his fathers uh, and then Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. So a 22 year uh, reign. He died. Uh, his life was just a uh, complete uh, failure. He had been warned against, uh, you know, the idolatry and the disobedience that he engaged in. And, and yet the forewarning of God, he didn't listen to it. And uh, so he uh, ends up with it. his name is worse than mud in uh, in the Old Testament. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused all of Israel to sin. It's kind of a song related to him in the Old Testament. His life was worse than a waste. It is very, very serious business for any leader among God's people to lead God's people into any semblance of idolatry or into any disobedience of God's word to stumble God's people in the way that Jeroboam stumbled God's people. Jesus put it even stronger than uh, Ahijah does here as a prophet. Jesus said that if anyone stumbles one of these little ones of mine in terms of their faith and their relationship with God, he said it would be better for them if a millstone was hung around their neck and they were thrown into the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee, it would be that would be a better thing than what awaits them. Serious business to be a leader in the body of Christ or to lead God's people and to introduce this kind of thing. Fear of God is the answer to it. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, he reigned in Judah, now in the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. And Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus. So he... uh, Uh, 41 years old, that's how we know how old he was when the people came and asked for some tax relief and some labor relief. He reigns for 17 years. So he dies even for the ancient world at a relatively young age of, of 58. Now, one of the things that's going to happen right now, if you're kind of new to this section of the scripture, is what God is going to do is he doesn't just take and say, all right, I'm going to tell you everything about the northern kingdom of Israel. So here is Jeroboam and his descendants right on down the line. And then after that, I'll tell you everything about the the kings and the kingdom of the southern kingdom of Judah. Instead, what he does is he said he gives us a little glimpse at what's happening in the uh, northern kingdom of Israel, what's happening there. And then when that guy, his reign comes to an end, he takes us down south to Judah and gets us caught up on the timeline, what's happening down there. Then he jumps us back up to the northern kingdom and so forth back and forth. And so here as we read in verse 21, 
um, uh, we're, we're told here that Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. So now we've moved from Israel in the north to Judah in the south. And we remember that Rehoboam, the ORS association, that he was the son of Solomon. So he's the guy that did that whole thing and, and was harsh with the people and, and provoked the split of the nation to begin with. Now, Judah did evil in the sight uh, of the Lord. And they provoked God to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. Interesting, we'll read in Second Chronicles when we get to it. And Second Chronicles is like a parallel account of First Kings. So it repeats some of the information, but it gives us a little fuller understanding of some things as well. We're told that Rehoboam walked with God until his kingdom became established. And once he got a hold of the power, once he got a hold of some material prosperity and all these kinds of things, then he took and he turned on God and he led the nation uh, into rebellion against the Lord. And you think about how many people do that. They walk with God until God. I can't tell. I, I can't number. It's not more than on one hand, but it's been quite a few people. Who I've talked with absolute Millionaires. Walk with God, obedient to God. God was blessing their lives. Today, all of it is gone. So they walk. There's that temptation to walk with God until I. And there's always blessings associated with that. Sometimes and sometimes material blessings. And that becomes a real test of our heart at that point in time. And so often a person is tempted. They God prospers them. And then they're tempted to now say, OK, I've got everything I wanted out of life. Now I'm going to jettison God and I'm just going to go do what it is that I that I want to do. And that was the heart of Jeroboam. He didn't have a deep uh, Rehoboam. That didn't have a deep uh, love for God or relationship with God. And they for they also verse 23 built for themselves high places uh, where they would, uh, you know, uh, they were the hills that became uh, places where they would worship the false gods, uh, sacred pillars. This refers to they would they would take the high places, the hills in in uh, in uh, Judah. They would plant groves or trees up there and uh, uh, then they would bring up symbols of these idols of Baal. And when they talk here about sacred pillars, it, it refers to a, a pile of rocks that would be placed there that was to represent the presence of Baal. And then uh, and then there was also wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And um, this is a reference to Asherah, who was kind of uh, the consort of uh, Baal. She was kind of like the female partner of him. And so they would uh, bring these wooden images up there. They would trim the trees in the in, in the um, in the shape of sexual organs, all this kind of stuff. And if they did that just to the surroundings, it only you can only imagine what was involved in the worship of these false gods. It was just it was they were just orgies up there in the name of God. It was just absolutely terrible. And just two generations away from David. And this is what's going on. And this is what the nation, not just the northern kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam, but this is what uh, the, the southern kingdom of Judah was doing. They were going back to worship all the gods of the Canaanites that um, God had displaced the Canaanites out of the land because of their wickedness. And now God's people are engaging in them. There were 
You have, you have homo, you have heterosexual sin. You have homosexual sin. You have bestiality in the worship of these gods. The, the, the sexual expression was so base and so degraded that entire villages and cities disappeared because of the venereal disease. That's how wicked... It's not just some thing where they, we've got some sanctified version of they got a few things up on a hill and they go up and burn some incense and click their fingers. This, the, these God's people are in way deep into sin here. So you can understand how troubled God is by all of this. And the responsibility of Jeroboam and Rehoboam for leading them into that when God had raised them up to do the exact opposite. And there were also perverted persons. It talks about sodomites uh, uh, referring to uh, male uh, homosexual um, uh, uh, Servants that would be up there, you could go up to worship Baal or whatever, and, there, and, and you could engage in homosexual sex with these, uh, the, these male uh, kind of priests or priestesses or whatever they were uh, in, in the land. This was, this was in Israel at the time, and they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Terrible. And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, he came up against Jerusalem in an invasion of, of Israel. Now you think about how hard David worked all of his reign to amass wealth, gold, silver, bronze for the building of the, the temple. And it was used then to build the palace and all this wealth and everything. Solomon amassed unbelievable wealth on top of unbelievable wealth. It can be gone overnight. It can be gone in a generation in this world. And that's exactly what happens here. Shishak, who was the king of Egypt at the time that Jeroboam took refuge there from from uh, Solomon, when Solomon was, uh, you know, wanting to get him because of God's call upon his life to become the king over the ten tribes. He invaded uh, Judah, went into Jerusalem, and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He took away all the gold shields that Solomon had made and had put upon the wall of of the palace of the cedars. So he just comes in. And again, here is a nation that is so given over to sin. They don't have the ability to defend themselves against Egypt. God said, if you just walk with me, no one will defeat you in battle. Not even one time will they defeat you in battle. And now here they are. Their nation is being invaded by a foreign country and they're being stripped of all of that wealth. It can be gone, taken by the rest of the world in an instant. And specifically, these gold shields that Solomon had made. You remember we read about it. He had made so many of them and he had put them up as kind of a testimony to the wealth and the blessing that God had put upon the nation of uh, of of Israel when it was United Nation and, and all. And uh, so all of those things, all those beautiful gold shields were taken away. And what did King Rehoboam do about it? He made bronze shields in their place. 
And he committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard and he guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them and then they brought them back into the guard room. So here they are. The gold, uh, the gold uh, shields are all gone. So Rehoboam makes a bunch of bronze ones instead and uh, has them brought out when he's doing some kind of a parade. And then after that, they don't put the bronze ones up uh, in in the uh, uh, house of cedar because they don't want the people to look and see what's happened. We've gone from gold to bronze. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. Gold is a metal. Is a, it's a symbol of royalty. It's a symbol of deity. It's a symbol of God. And that nation under David initially and then under Solomon for a time, that was a nation that was obedient to God and God blessed it. Gold was the metal. It was a testimony to the rest of the world. Look at the blessings that are there, not just spiritually, but in all ways of following the God of the children of Israel. How can we know him as well? And so it was a, it spoke of the blessing that God had brought upon the nation. And then now they replace it with bronze. Interestingly enough, the metal bronze in Scripture is very often used as a picture of judgment. And so it's a symbol now that they've gone as a nation from being under God's favor to now being under his judgment. And yet they act like nothing has happened. We just went from one medal to another medal on these shields and putting them up in the in the uh, uh, the house of, of cedars here in, in is a demonstration of, of of the wealth. And yet the entire nation is collapsing before their very eyes. And 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 judgment is on them and they pretend that there's no judgment on their land. When Shishak comes into Judah and he he not only strips them of their wealth in Jerusalem, but then he went in and he began to cut off all of these trade routes where all of this money and goods were flowing into the southern kingdom of Judah. You're talking about a economic catastrophe for the southern kingdom of Judah. Their, their standard of living dropped like a rock during this period of time. And all of it was rep, a representation of the fact that they had moved from God and, and, and were now under his judgment. Again, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I, it doesn't matter, again, as we began, doesn't matter how much wealth a country has. Doesn't matter how much it's, it's stored up, how much of a history that it has. Once there's a move away from God, all of that can be lost in an instant. And again, it's not the wealth. The wealth and the loss of the wealth is a symptom of the bigger problem. And that is that God has been replaced with idolatry and disobedience. And, and that's what needed to turn around and won't turn around for a time uh, in, in uh, the southern kingdom of, of Judah. It would never turn around the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel had 19 or 20 kings, all of them evil. 
They never had one good king. At least Judah had uh, several good kings. So he takes, and his solution to gold shields being lost is to just make bronze ones, and let's just pretend that that didn't happen. Now, the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all of their days, and not major invasions of one another, but border skirmishes marked the entire period of their reigns between the two nations. And so Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried uh, with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was uh, Naamah and Ammonitus, and then Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. And so uh, here it comes to uh, the end of, of his reign introduced to his son and um, who will become the next king. And we'll just see whether we'll go into that even for a minute here uh, this evening. Let's see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 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 Nope, we won't. We'll stop right there tonight. I just, I just hate to stop at one chapter, but it's my own fault. So if we'll have the worship team come forward and lead us in a little bit of worship here this evening. <laughs> 